Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that, we brought, <clears throat> that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who has called you to be holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Father, we thank you for our text this morning, and we pray now that you would use your spirit and your word in our lives. We come to the most important part of our service, not just because it's a sermon, that's not the most important part, hearing you speak from your own word, you speaking to us and over us and in us, we need you to speak now. So we pray that you would grant us ears to listen and hearts to receive your word, that, that we would not be dull, as we saw from Isaiah, that, that we would not hear but lack understanding, that we would not see but lack perception. Father, grant understanding, grant perception, because we need to see you. And in seeing you rightly, we see ourselves rightly. And we come to this text, and we're mindful there's grace that will be brought to us, not grace that we will have earned. That there's a therefore in this text. And so the the gospel is to be making a difference in and through us. There are some things that we are called to do in your strength and your power, preparing our minds. And that through all of this, that we're to be holy, not in some of our conduct, but in all of our conduct. That people should not have to guess about your character when they look at us. That people should not have to wonder if we are your children when they look at us. And so, Father, we need your word. We need the word of hope. Because who of us can be holy in our own? We cannot. And that's not what you're asking. Matter of fact, you tell us in this text, you ransomed us from the futility of our forefathers by the precious blood of Jesus. That all of the holiness you expect from us, you provide for us in Jesus. So, Father, may we see Jesus. May we see the gospel in this sermon. May we declare with, our, with all of our hearts that he was known before and made known now for our sake. So that we could see what you were doing for us in Jesus. And may we hear it one more time as we gather here. Father, I'm grateful that the gospel is not a stranger in our texts. That Jesus is not a stranger in this place. But we, we want to make him known because he is the only means of having our sin atoned and our guilt taken away. You are not calling us to be good people. You are calling us to be gospel people. So, Father, if there are ways that we are not reflecting your character, convict us this morning. Use your word. If there are ways we're not preparing our minds. We're being lazy with your word. Convict us this morning. 
And God, we beg, don't just move in this room. Our city needs you to move in each church that's gathered. Tupelo needs a gospel awakening. They don't need religion. They need people who have been made children of God. So, Father, would you allow the gospel to go forth in our city and may it be effectual. Strengthen the lips of those who are proclaiming your word and open the ears and eyes and hearts of those who are hearing it. As always, God, we don't need to be informed this morning. We need to be transformed by what we see. So grant every grace we need for this to be true. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We've been walking through 1 Peter. If this is your first Sunday with us, we're really glad that you were here. Our uh, conviction is to walk through biblical books, believing nothing is better for God's people than God's word. And uh, so we've been walking through a series in 1 Peter, and we have taken our time in the first chapter because there's so much to concentrate on. There's such good truth that's here, things that fuel our worship of God. And so we have taken our time, and now we'll consider our biggest chunk yet in verses 13 through 21. And what we have seen, if this is your first Sunday, we've seen that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. That God has granted and guards for us an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And that God is guarding our faith and will guide us successfully until we have full possession of salvation. And that God uses even the trials we face for our good and his glory to refine our faith. And that while we wait, what Peter said is, we love Jesus, we believe in Jesus, and we rejoice with the joy in Jesus that we can't even put into words. That, we are, that joy is inexpressible and filled with his glory. And I hope that's each one of us. That we never get over all that God has done. God is guarding. God is causing. God is moving. God is using even our trials. And so we love him. And we believe in him. And there's a joy that marks our lives. If I ask you this morning to, to write things that you cared about uh, on a sheet of paper and to list maybe even the top five things that you cared about, what would you, what would you write there? What would you place there? I know certainly in my list would be my family uh, outside of the Lord Jesus. There's nothing I care more about in this world than my family, uh, followed by then our faith family would be what I cared about. LSU would be a close fourth, right behind those things. Very, very close fourth. And then Taco Bell and Mountain Dew would be tied for fifth, probably, in my, on my own journey. If I made a list of things I don't care about, running would be number one. And so Justin Bieber would be number two. And so then <clears throat> there are things that we all care about and don't care about. I wonder if we were making a list of things that we cared about, how far down would we get on the list before we got to holiness? And, and how far down the list would we get to things that are important to God or important to me? I, I care about what's important to God, right? And, and, and do we care about holiness? And why? why? Why should we care? Well, there are two reasons why you should care about holiness. The Bible says, number one, without holiness, we will not see God. In Hebrews twelve fourteen, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So if we want to see the Lord, we need holiness. The second reason that we should care about holiness is without holiness, we will not be with God. All right. So, so without holiness, we will not see him. And without holiness, we will not be with him. Revelation paints a picture and, and 
chapter 21, verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And then several verses later in verse 27, but nothing unclean will ever enter this new Jerusalem, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, I want to be clear to you, there would be plenty of people in heaven who were cowardly, who were faithless, who were detestable, who were murderers, but who repented from all of these things, and they found grace in Jesus. Those who continue on and who perish are those who never turned from that, who never were rescued from that, who only continued to walk in that, those for whom holiness was not a mark of their life. If holiness is a mark of any of our lives, it will only be because of the grace of God. If, it, if we are those who get to go in because we have holiness that allows us to see him and holiness that allows him to be with him, we have already seen from First Peter, it won't be because we were really keen and figured it out, but it's because he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, that he has caused us to see him to then see ourselves and then to see Christ as the need that we meet, to the, what the, our need being met in, in him. And so this morning, all throughout the service, we've already highlighted God's holiness. I will say this to you. If holiness is important to us, some of the very first people who will know will be our family. We shouldn't be able to hide holiness in our home, right? That it would be evident there. The second group would be our, our friends and our co-workers. And I want to say this to you, that our holiness is revealed more through our practice than our profession. God is not interested in our claims this morning. He is interested in our conduct. He is not interested in, in you framing something on social media that fools everyone else. You will not fool him. You will not fool him. And so holiness is demonstrated through our practice more than our profession. He is not interested in just talk. He wants to see walk as his character is reflected to us. We're going to study verses 13 through 21, and as we do the passage, uh, I put it in a sentence for you at the top of your notes, that as we set our hope fully on the grace God gives us in Christ, we are to reflect his character in all of our conduct, because through the gospel call, we've become God's children. There's something that's changed in us, not something we changed ourselves. There's something that God has changed in us. Through that call, he makes us his children, and then as a part of that, that we should reflect his character in our conduct all setting our hope on the grace that Jesus is going to bring to us at his revelation, that this is where it is. Or to make it even simpler for you this morning, therefore, be holy and hopeful. Therefore, be holy and hopeful is the essence of what we're being called to do. In the first 12 verses, there are no commands. Uh, but then we begin in verse 13, and we have this word, therefore. Truth number one, then, in your notes is that for all true believers... There is a therefore of the gospel in our lives. I did not say that there should be or there could be. What I'm telling you is for all true believers, there is a therefore of the gospel in our lives. There is change. There is fruit. There is evidence. As, as those religious leaders once gathered with Jesus' disciples to say, these men have been with Jesus. These men have been with Jesus. There is a therefore of the gospel. If there is no therefore, there is no gospel. If there is no therefore, then, then Christ has not truly redeemed and ransomed. It's not been effectual. And so when we begin with the word therefore, of course, if you're doing good Bible study, you should always circle that and say, what's it? There it is. What's it therefore? What's the therefore, right? And the therefore here is saying, 
Everything that follows this therefore is to be done because everything that precedes this therefore is already true. So what you're being called to in verse 13 is because 1 through 12 are already true of you. You living out 13 will not make 1 through 12 true. You living out 13 is because 1 through 12 are already true for you. We use language to describe this as indicatives and imperatives. As you study how language is broken down, right? And imperatives are commands. We're dealing with that as Anaram does his test. And he's studying about a declarative statement or an interrogative question or an imperative, which is, which is a command, right? And I think for a lot of the time growing up in the church that I grew up in, I had a lot of the imperatives, but they were not connected to the gospel indicatives. So for instance... In Romans 12, that, hey, present yourselves to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. But there's an important therefore in Romans 12:1 that is fueled by all of chapters Romans 1 through 11. So that all of this is what God has done for us in Jesus, therefore, by his mercy. So God isn't calling you to prepare your mind today in your own strength. You're not that strong. He's saying, therefore, if you've been made alive to a living hope, you have the resources you need to do this. That's the gospel indicative. This is what God has done. And now the imperative, this is what God is calling you to do in his strength, in his grace, by his mercy. Not because you're really good, but because of the gospel, right? Because you have the fuel that you need. Ephesians 1 through 3, chapters 1 through 3. This is who you are in Jesus. Ephesians 4, verse 1. Therefore... Walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. But let me see, let me show you Peter. Turn to Second Peter verse one. Turn to Second Peter chapter one. Second Peter chapter one. I'll show you therefore in Peter's own writing. I'll leave off to the side the people that debate whether Peter wrote it or not. We'll just assume the Lord knows what he's talking about. Second Peter one, <clears throat> beginning in verse three. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he's granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. Do you see that? Verse 3 and 4. Here's everything God has done for you. Here's what God has done. He's granted to you everything you need for, uh, for life and godliness. Again, our greatest problem in the week is not resources, it's reliance. It's not that we lack the resources we need to be obedient. It's that we lack reliance upon God and his grace and his mercy. He says he's given you all you need for life and godliness. Now, verse 5, for this very reason. What reason? Everything he just told you in 3 and 4. Because of what God has done for you already in your life through Jesus. For this very reason then, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Virtue with knowledge. Knowledge with self-control. Self-control with steadfastness. Steadfastness with godliness. Godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. He said, because God has done this for you in Jesus, now in that strength, make every effort to grow in Jesus. I wonder, was your week marked by making every effort to grow in Jesus? Was your week, because of what God has done for you, marked by doing all you can to grow in what he's continuing to do and wants to do. And he tells you why. He goes on to say, verse 8, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Man, how many congregations are, are, are full of folks that are ineffective and unfruitful for Jesus? He says, but if you're growing in Jesus, you will be very fruitful for Jesus because you won't be able to hide it. Jesus will be seen through you. That will be the fruit of Christ. People will be like, man, 
There's love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control in your life. I, I see Jesus. I see Jesus, right? And then look what he says in verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. He said, he said you know, if you're not growing in Jesus, is it because you've forgotten what he rescued you from? That he's saying what should fuel our, our striving to grow is because we've never forgotten being qualified, delivered, transferred, redeemed, and forgiven. We've never gotten over that in the depth and wretchedness of our sin, he didn't go away from us. He met us right there. And he rescued us. And we've never gotten over that. And then he goes on to say, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, and growing up in the church I grew up in, I think for the most part, we started at verse 5. Make every effort. Make every effort. And it was sort of a reverse. If we made every effort, then maybe verses 3 and 4 would be true then maybe God would grant what I needed for life and godliness. For instance, no one ever connected obey and honor your father and mother from Ephesians 6 with Ephesians 5.18 of being filled with the Spirit. I can assure you that, that when wives were being called to submit and men were called to lead sacrificially in Ephesians 5, my home pastor never connected it to 5.18 being filled with the Spirit. So we were left to making our yearly commitment at New Year's or after D-Now or after youth camp. We, we resolve and we make a commitment in ourselves. And the problem is we don't have enough resources within ourselves to keep any of those things. The best part is, let me give you good news. God hasn't expected you to keep anything in your own strength. He has given you all you need for life and godliness. Now in his resources, make every effort to grow in Jesus because you've never gotten over the gospel. So Peter says back in our text, 1 Peter 1, therefore, therefore, don't you love it? We're in the first word, all right? So where the gospel takes root, there's gospel fruit. And in our lives, the gospel brings godly change. Of course, the students know they've been with me before. I think one of the greatest examples of this is Zacchaeus. And, and you know, I've told you, I, I hate the song Zacchaeus. You know, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, wee little man was he. Climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted And as his Savior passed him by, he looked up and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down for I'm going to your house today. Going to your house today. Nice refrain on that, you know, repeats it. Going to your house today. And then the song stops. I hate that song. I hate that song. Did anything significant happen in Zacchaeus' life when Jesus went to his home? Anyone? Yeah, right? Something significant happened, right? My man got saved. My man was changed, right? And you know that because instead of taking money, he started giving money away. You can only do that if you're saved, right? Otherwise, you're like, hey, give me that dollar, you know? And so this man is showing up, and he is pre-publisher's clearinghouse. He is blessing people. And I always say, what effort would it have taken to write two extra lines into that song? Something like, Jesus went to little Z's house. He never was the same. Gave half his stuff to the poor and lived for Jesus' name. It doesn't take a lot, right, to get to the gospel in that song. Come on, Lifeway, be better, you know? And so, so here it is, that there's a therefore, and I hate that we're, we're cutting that song off. Don't get me started on deep and wide. There's a fountain flowing, you know? Maybe it's a Krispy Kreme glaze fountain. I hope it is, you know? And so... Man, why are we not getting to the gospel and songs for our children, right? So therefore, there was a therefore in Zacchaeus' life that no one doubted. There was a therefore in Paul's life that no one doubted. And the question is, is there a therefore in our life that no one is doubting? Therefore, 
because God has caused me to be made alive and because he is guarding me and he has an inheritance for me and because he's working even the trials to refine my faith. Therefore, here's what's coming. Here's what I'm doing. So let's get to that. Therefore, we are being called to do some things today. And above all, in, in the section, the biggest one is, is to be hopeful, to, to set our hope. But he says here in verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So 1 through 12, here's all God has done for you. Now, verse 13, here's something that you do in the resources that God gives us. And the very first thing that we're being called to is to keep preparing our minds for action. This is not a one thing and done. This is that we're constantly doing this the way that's written. That we keep preparing our minds, not for academics, but for action. We keep preparing our minds to, to move us to do something. The way to say it is get your minds ready. Or if you look at the little subnote, subnote they're girding up the loins of your mind. And many of us don't know that because as men, we no longer wear the robes that they would wrap up and tie so they could run, right? It's difficult to run in a robe. It's difficult for me to run without a robe. But they would and want to run, and so they would tie it up so they could run and be fast. And what he's saying is get your mind ready, just as you would get your robe ready, get your mind ready for action because of what God has done. Why? Because a mind captivated by Christ produces a body yielded to his purposes. When our mind is captivated by Christ, our body will say, yes, Lord, here I am. Send me whatever you need me to do. And if we're going to set our minds if we're going to get our minds ready and if we're going to love God with all our minds, you remember that, right? He called us to do that too, right? To love him with all our minds. While we would affirm that Christianity should have emotion and affection, he's never called us to go around our minds for that to be true. And if we're going to do any of that, the reason will be because he changes our minds, first of all. Because when we first encounter him, our minds are futile, they're darkened, they're ignorant, they're hostile. Mm, what a beautiful brain. What a beautiful mind, right? And so what we acknowledge is that God alone puts our mind in gear. That's what he's saying here. Get your mind in gear. Well, God alone is the means of doing that and to be going with and for the gospel. So we want to acknowledge from the beginning that if we even have the hope of putting our mind in motion and getting our mind ready, it's because Christ has taken what was dark and futile, hostile and ignorant and changed it and made it receptive and open and we say yes nothing prepares our mind more than praying and considering God's word nothing gets our mind ready more than God's revelation because in his word we see his will and discover what's to be our way right so when he says prepare your mind he doesn't mean go to the world above all he means go to the word there are five reasons why I memorize scripture as much as I can number one so I can consider it all day long so that even when I close it, I can still think about it. When I'm sitting in carpool, when I'm sitting in staff meeting and the guys bore me, when I'm, when I'm you know, going places, not while Tara's talking to me. I always pay attention while Tara's talking to me. But every other situation, when I'm on a soccer field with students who I think can't hear me because they don't seem to react to what I'm telling them, then my mind can go to Scripture be holy in all your conduct, especially what you want to scream on the field, right? So I can consider it all day long. Number two, I can pray it. Number three, I can have fuel for worship. So I memorize it so I can consider it, so I can pray it back, so I can have fuel for worship. Number four, so I can share it with others. And number five, so I can live it. 
so I can live it, right? I know what he wants, so I can walk in his will. If all the scripture you could have for the rest of your life was only what you've read and memorized this year, how much would you have for the rest of your life? How much would you have? Why does it matter? Because if we're not preparing our minds for action, we're not reading and considering his word, I can tell you this, we're probably thinking very little on Jesus. And if we're thinking very little on Jesus with our minds, then, then preparing them for action is going to be difficult. And above all, if we're thinking very little on Jesus, then he's probably making very little difference through us in this world. If all we think on is the world, it's no wonder that we think like the world. If all we're putting into our mind are the things of the world, whether it's Instagram, whether it's any kind of app you want, whether it's billboard, whether it's magazines, whether it's newspapers for people who still get those, whatever it is, if all you're putting in your mind, Capital One, ask a question. What's in your, see, you know it, you know it because I've said it. Today, Peter's asking, what's in your mind? What's in your mind? Are you preparing your mind for action? If you had to say from, from the start of this semester in August, have you used your mind more to love Jesus or to love the world? Have you poured into your mind more things from the world or, or the word? I think we don't even realize how much we aim at the world in our daily and how much we intake it in our daily routines. Depth and delight in Jesus don't come from just desire alone, but also from discipline. You want to grow in Jesus? Open the word. Consider him. Prepare your minds. R.C. Sproul said, many Christians today do not want to think. How many of you would say, yes, it's already hurting my brain right now. Let's move on to something else. Move on to feeling. Many Christians today do not want to think. They do not want to grapple with the content of the word of God. They want their religion to be one of feeling. The worship we're to offer to God is not mindless worship. And so, therefore, because what God has done, prepare your minds for action not academic debates and, and winning arguments, but because it will move you to do something as you see what his will is in his word. Second thing he says then, therefore, keep preparing your minds for action. And then number two, keep being sober-minded. Being sober-minded. I read last week about a guy in our area who got his eighth DUI. Eighth DUI. You know, man, somebody got to take some keys at this point, right? Somebody's got to do something. And while... While Peter does not mean driving under the influence, he does mean when he says sober-minded, under the influence. What are you under the influence of? Keep preparing your minds and limit what influences your thinking. Don't be dominated by the world. So in Ephesians 5, when Paul uses the same thing, and he talks about being sober-minded, it always means what's dominating, what's coming in, what's influencing your mind, and, and to be clear in your thinking about who God is and all he's done for you. So... The only way to do that then is not being dominated by the world, but being dominated by the word so that there's a clear stream of truth that continues to wash into our mind. So keep preparing your mind and keep letting your mind being influenced by the word even more than your own will, your own things. And then lastly here, keep setting our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. You should underline that phrase. I've bracketed it in my verse. Fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We can have more confidence in what God is going to do than what we are going to do. That I'm more confident in what he's going to give me than what I'm going to give to him. And that the grace that we need, he brings to us. You know, in some religions, it is the hope that at the end of life, you've earned enough credits. What you can rest on is all the credits will be brought to you fully. 
fully and finally. And if that doesn't make you sing, I don't know what's going to make you sing this morning. That we set our hope fully, that our confidence is not in preparing our mind or keeping our mind pure. Ultimately, our full confidence is setting our hope on the grace that Jesus will bring to us, that will bring our salvation to completion. This is where we are most confident, in Christ and not in us. This is where we are. So therefore, here's what you're called to do today. You're actually called to exert some effort, to have some responsibility. Prepare your minds for action. Limit what is being put into your mind so that you're not dominated. And then set your hope fully on the grace that's going to be brought to you. Don't, don't, don't think that uh, you're earning or you're adding to or any of these things. And ultimately your confidence is Jesus is going to bring you all you need on the day that he appears. Amen? All right. So we set our, fo- our hope fully here. Now why? And every child who's ever been born, that's one of the first words they ask, right? Why? Why? Uh, and I have some of these guys on the socket, why? Or they just say, no, you know, it's my favorite. It's an opportunity for sanctification, coaching park and rec soccer. And so uh, I get to say, well, here's the why. Here's, here's why we do what we do. And that's what Paul, uh, Peter moves to next. So therefore, we're being called to do these things. And now truth number three in your outline, we are being called to do these things because, and what we see is beginning in verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it's written, you should be holy, for I am holy. So we're being called to prepare our minds for action, to be sober-minded and set our hope fully, uh, because number one, God is holy, and there's some things that he's done for us. So God is holy. I've put there in, in your notes, we should never let our access to God be to the detriment of our awe of God. I think sometimes on this side of the cross and the access we have and the fact that you and I didn't have to walk through curtains to be here and the fact that we didn't have to put an animal on an altar and see it slaughtered in front of us and we didn't have to put our hands on that animal knowing that it died because we chose rebellion, not because it chose rebellion. And because we didn't have to do that, sometimes the familiarity keeps us from having the awe that God is holy. That God is separate, that God is distinct from us, and that we should, as he goes on to say at the very end of verse 17, I guess middle end, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. That, that, before, the God, that before God we should have a holy fear, a holy reverence, and so we should never let our access to God be to the detriment of our all for God, because he is holy. So what does it mean for him to be holy? Now, I want to give you some categories to think about that this morning. I've, I've put a list of four there for you. Number one is his purity. What it means for God to be holy is that he is the standard and definition of all that is good. He is the standard of righteousness to which the whole universe must conform. We don't conform to, to, he doesn't conform to what our wishes are. We are to conform to him and he is the center of the universe. No matter how many times a day we try to make ourselves the center of the universe. So in his purity, he's absolutely free from evil. Or as John wrote in 1 John 1 verse 5, God is light in him there is no darkness at all. But don't miss this. God not only determines what is right, he always does it without the slightest hesitation. So it's not just that he knows what's right. He always does it, and he doesn't, he doesn't waffle. Sometimes you're like, uh, I think I should do this. Uh, maybe I should do this. God always does what's right without the slightest hesitation. So the word holy means separate or set apart, distinct. And as Mitchell has already read for us, Who's like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who's like you, majestic in holiness? And in Revelation 4, 8, same thing. And all around the throne, holy, holy, holy. 
as the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So his purity is one of the things that we mean about his holiness. His passion, then, is the next thing I want you to consider, is that since God is holy, we can be confident that all of his actions toward us are always perfect and good, and he also has a passion to punish rebellion and, and sin. Because he's holy, he can't excuse or overlook any sin that we commit. Uh, Tony Evans, years ago, said, we are dealing with a very holy being who demands to be taken seriously and who stands distinct from anything that is impure. Think about it. For one sin, Adam was put out of the garden. For one sin, Cain and his progeny were cursed. For one sin, Moses was kept out of the promised land. For one sin, Elijah's servant got leprosy. For one sin, Ananias and Sapphira were killed. That's a consuming fire. That's what we need to consider. Because God is holy, he hates sin. And as Jerry Bridges has written, we may trifle with our sins or excuse them, but God hates them. Every time we sin, we're doing something God hates and we become so accustomed to our sins, we sometimes lapse into a state of peaceful coexistence with them. But God never ceases to hate them. His purity and his passion, his passion is not just that he is holy, but that, that his people will be holy. Third aspect of his holiness is his presence. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, and it says that God alone has immortality and he dwells in unapproachable light. Just think about that phrase for one moment unapproachable light. You think, well, maybe I could stroll up to see him, right? Unapproachable light, right? Just think about, yes, you approaching the sun. That's going to work out great, right? It will not work out great. You won't even make it to the sun before you are burnt and obliterated. And yet God dwells in unapproachable light. He is the one who is high and lifted up. And yet what he does is he makes a means and a way for us to be able to approach him, which is really important because we cannot approach God in any way we choose. We can only approach God on his terms. His terms. God does not conform to the world. The world must conform to a holy God, which gets us to the last part, his, his provision. He knows unless he changes us, we could never dwell with him. We could never be with him. So, what Peter writes, he says, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on God. Why? Well, because he's holy, first of all. Second, because God expects us to be holy at all times and in all ways. Look at what he points out here. He's obviously quoting from Leviticus. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Or in verse 15, as he who called you is holy, you also shall be holy in all your conduct. How many of you wish the word all was not there? You wish the word all was not there. You see, God expects us to be holy at all times in all ways. As his children, we are to reveal his character in all of our conduct. You shall be holy, for I am holy. How many of you think some of my kids look like me? How many of you, have you seen it, right? How many of you think Alistair especially is a mini-me? All right? So it's the picture here that what, when people look at us, they should say, oh, I see your dad. I see your dad. What is it that's fueling that? The, the obedience and that in our conduct, holiness is God producing his character in us and through us. That's what holiness is. It's God producing his character in us and through us. And so don't miss this. God is not merely requiring you this morning to acknowledge he is holy. You've done that if you've sung it and you've heard it read and you read it. It's one thing to acknowledge that he's holy. Anybody can do that. 
He is not merely requiring that we acknowledge his holiness, but he is requiring that we be holy too. That we be holy. And, and what God doesn't accept is, well, this is just the way I am. <laughs> That's not going to fly with him. That's not going to make it. Ephesians 1, 4, it says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That's his plan, that we would be holy and blameless before him. 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. And when it, when it says here to be holy in all your conduct, <clears throat> Wayne Grudem will note that it speaks of a pattern of life that transforms every day, every moment, every thought, every action. To be holy as God is holy includes a full and pervading holiness that reaches to every aspect of our personality. Not just, well, I'm holy with this area, but, but this one over here, that's still me. Right? I'm going to keep this area. I'm going I'm to keep how I interact with my kids. I'm going to keep what I say. I'm going to keep what I tweet. That's my business. Right? And, and yet, what Peter is saying is, no, that, that's not your business. And, and what I've written there for you as an exhortation is, though holiness in all our conduct may not be achieved, it should be our aim. Look, let's all admit, how many of you were holy in all of your conduct this week? Right? None of us, right? But it should be our aim. We shouldn't say just because we're not going to be holy, we don't aim for it. No, it should always be our aim to do what's right, to do what God says is pure and best. I put a quote from J.C. Ryle. I'm reading his book right now, Holiness. It's massive, by the way. And he writes, it says, The true Christian hates sin, flees from it, fights against it, considers it his greatest plague, resents the burden of its presence, mourns when he falls under its influence, and longs to be completely delivered from it. Is that you? Is that Austin? We hate sin. We, we want to put away anything that pulls us away from God. That We would treat it as an enemy. In the Old Testament, in Numbers, when... when when 25,000 people died on one day, that's, that'll get your attention, right? And, and what happened is Moses was commanded to put to death all of these that had moved away and to, and to then move forward and to, to put these enemies to death because they had pulled his people away from God. And we need to treat with hostility uh, anything that pulls us away. I mean, Jesus says, cut off your hand and pluck out your eye. Now, I can tell you, you can do those things and that won't change your heart. But he does mean that we should have some intensity at putting away unholy things in our life because they grieve us. Above all, they grieve God. And so holiness and obedience should be normal and sin the exception. Holiness and obedience should be the regular pattern and sin the rare pattern, right? And so how long do we do this? He says, throughout the time of your exile. So not just right after disciple now, not just right after uh, summer camp, not just, but, but throughout that we continue. This is the pattern in which we live as long as he gives us breath. So he says, do not conform to the world. Verse 14, you should underline it begins as obedient children. So we're not to conform to the world because we're children who've been called. That's why. We've been changed. There's something different about us. Our conduct is to reveal our calling and his character. And so don't miss, as obedient children, do not be conformed. The word there means to be squeezed into the pattern of this age. Do not be squeezed into the pattern of this age to the passions of your former ignorance. How many of you, when you were growing up, your mom or dad used this phrase? You know better than that. Anyone ever use that phrase? You know better than that. Peter just dropped it on you. Peter just said, formerly 
You didn't know better. But now, you know better. There's something that's changed internally. The, the gospel has brought this change. At one point, you didn't know better, but now you do. Listen, to love Jesus with our mind is a daily battle. A daily battle. How many of you drink water from your tap at home? You just open up the faucet. Yeah. I just want to know where the brave souls were, right? Uh, what if like a little drop of sewage just leaked into those pipes? Would it bother you at all? Right? At once, you know, granddaddy has a, a place over on Rankin and one Thanksgiving before we were living in Tupelo, we'd come home to, to visit and, and at the end of Rankin there, the, their plumbing was backed up. And so granddaddy came and and he, there's a release valve on the driveway of that thing, so he released it. And everything that was clogging that pipe began to come out on the driveway. And while I sat there, I was amazed because I watched a bird circle. And then the bird came down and began to partake in everything that had come out of the pipe. And I was trying not to vomit in that moment. And then the bird went and got his friends and was like, come back, guys, I found something awesome. And all these birds began to fly. I was like, you have lost your mind, birds, all right? And so, God, you say you'll feed them. I'm not sure about this today, you know, in this instance. I was bothered by that because they're, they're feasting on this. Listen, to love God with our minds is a battle because there's a lot of sewage that is tempted to seep into the supply from the world. The world will tell you, promote yourself instead of deny yourself. They're going to tell you that every day. The world is going to tell you, use others rather than serve others. You're going to put that in your mind every day. The world is going to say, do to others as they do to you, instead of doing to them what you would have them do to you, namely loving them or praying for them. The world promotes accumulating stuff instead of storing treasures in heaven. The world promotes doing whatever you want sexually instead of there not being a hint of sexual immorality. Adrian Rogers years ago said, don't put a question mark where God has put a period. The world promotes pursuing fading satisfaction and stuff instead of full satisfaction in Christ. That drip, drip, drip. It's, it's trying to get into that supply. And it is a daily battle to love God with our mind. But it's what you're being called to. Do not be conformed. Do not be squeezed into the pattern of thinking. And, and if your mind is going to be changed, it's going to start by receiving that word, do not. Because who likes being told, do not? Who likes being told no? One of the ways that you can know that God is changing your mind is that you come to believe that every do not from God is for your best. And that every do is too. That's what I tell students every summer. Every do not from God is drenched in love. Many of us have seen as we grew up, and now uh, that Arabella's in high school in particular, we've all seen people who dated people that did not have their best interest at heart. We've seen people date people that that, that lover just shredded them to pieces. And what God wants you to know is he alone loves you for your absolute best and purest. Every time we think, well, I'm going to give my heart today just a little bit to the world, the flesh, and the devil, they will do what they always do. They will shred your heart to pieces. They want to devour you and consume you. And so as, as God is saying here, do not, that do not is drenched in love. Don't be squeezed into the pattern of thinking of this world. You used to not know better. Now you do. Not, not only do you know better, you know best. And you know what God says is always for your best. And when our mind is captivated by Christ, we said it earlier, our, our body will be yielded to his purposes. You can know the gospel's taken root in your life when 
Not only you know what he wants and you do what he wants, but you want to do what he wants. You can know that you're being transformed. And so he says here, as obedient children, ah, I can see your dad. I can see your dad in that. I hear your dad's voice. When you say that, I hear your dad's voice. The day you and I, let me just say this. Adoption is the highest privilege the gospel offers us. The day that you stop getting over that you don't have to just call him high king and you can call him heavenly father. It's the day you need to pray and ask God to break your cold heart. That he is our father. He's not just getting us to heaven. He's bringing us into his home. He's bringing us into his family. And they need to see dad in us. And we can do it not because we had it in our own nature, but because he has changed our nature. And he has made us obedient children so that our desire is not in some of our conduct, not in our occasional conduct, but in all of our conduct. God, please let him see you. Please let him see your character. Now, why would we do these things? Because God is holy. Because God expects us to be holy at all times and in all ways. And, and truth number three, or sub-point number three under that, is that at great, great cost to himself, God provides all the holiness we need. You should, you should circle that. That's why this is not a do better, be better. You do not have the resources you need in your own. But in Christ, we have all the resources we need. Our change comes at his cost. Here's what he goes on to say, verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So at great cost to himself, God provides all we need. You see, when, when that tongue was taken and that coal was taken from the altar for Isaiah, the ultimate atonement would not come from that tongue or that coal. The ultimate atonement would be when all of Isaiah's woe, I'm undone, was laid on Christ 700 years later. And it would come only through Christ and at great cost. So for Isaiah to be able to say, here I am, send me, it's only because God knew he was sending his own son to the most difficult mission there would ever be for the sake of the gospel. And so at great cost, God calls unholy people to come to himself. At great cost, he does it. And he knows exactly who he's calling and what it will cost him. And the provision of our holiness comes only through the precious blood of Christ. He didn't give silver because silver wouldn't do it. He gave his son. And I want you to consider some things that we see here in the text about his son. So our change comes at his cost because our change comes only through Christ. And what we see is that Christ is our precious, priceless, and perfect sacrifice. He says that he's like a lamb without blemish or spot. You know why? Because Christ had nothing unholy in himself. Christ had no rebellion in himself. There could never be a better sacrifice and we can rejoice there's no other sacrifice that is needed because he was a lamb without blemish or spot and it was precious and priceless. How precious was it to you this week? 
How precious was it to you this week that God gave his priceless son. He didn't redeem you with things that perish here. He redeemed you with the precious blood of his son Jesus. Second, that Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. It says he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. What you can know is that both our salvation and Christ's sacrifice were forethoughts, not afterthoughts in God's providence. So before he even said, let there be light, our salvation was already known to him. He, he knew what the plan was. This is why the word foreknown can't mean that God looks down the tunnel and picks those who would choose him. He didn't look down the tunnel and see that Jesus would choose him. That's not what foreknown means. It means what he says to Jeremiah, before you were in your mother's womb, I knew you. Before there were any unformed parts, I knew you. And from eternity past, he has always known Christ as the lamb who would be slain. That he has always known that Christ would be the savior. And so this is incredible that he says, let there be light. And he lets Adam and Eve and all the process play out because he knows what he's going to do. He's not reacting. Jesus was not plan B. He was always plan A. So your rescue, no one has thought about your salvation longer than God. And it's been costlier to no one more than God. That it comes through Christ, who you should thank him that he wasn't willing just to die. But for every day, his conduct was reflective of the character of his father. So that he could be that lamb without spot or blemish. And then, look. He was known before the foundation of the Lord, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Christ was revealed and raised, which results in our faith and hope in God. He sent his son for our sake so that we might put full confidence in God, so that we would have faith and hope in him he was revealed he was resurrected and he was raised and don't miss this for his glory yes but for your sake too so that you may see him so we have been ransomed from our father's futility from our forefathers futility by our heavenly father's faithfulness and the word ransom he is our ransom and our rescue that he has paid the debt that's there and let me just give you some pictures to, to close this out. God doesn't just expect our holiness. He provides it and he empowers it. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Just for a moment. Let, let's close out there. And then I'll give you some final thoughts on the back of your notes for holiness. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And let's just begin reading in verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus. In our text, and Peter, don't, don't miss all of those. Through him, in him, for him, right? We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. Prepare your mind for action. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, 
because the Lord is an avenger and all these things as we told you before him and solemnly warned you. So don't miss this. Paul is saying to the church at Thessalonica, you guys know what instructions we gave you. Do that more and more. Don't do it once. Keep doing it. As Moses told those that were getting ready to go across into the promised land in Deuteronomy, these are the words of, anyone know? Life. There will be life for you and your children. So, so Paul tells the church of Thessalonica, look, keep doing this over and over. And he says, because this is God's will, your sanctification. You don't have to pray about it. It's not debate. Does God want me to grow in Christ? Yes. Does God want me to grow in holiness? Yes. Right? And you don't even have to pray. It's what he wants. He wants you to grow in holiness. And then he tells you why. So abstain. And he says there, the context is sexual immorality. Because he says, if you don't, you will lose self-control. But, but it is true for every sin. So it doesn't have to be just sexual immorality. We should abstain, abstain from sexual sins, but we should abstain from every sin. Because when we aim at the sin rather than the Savior, we become desensitized and we want to go deeper. It's like years ago, the commercial with the Lay's potato chips. I bet you can't eat just anyone? One. Yeah, because when we sin, we, we want to go further. And don't miss what Paul says. He says the same thing. You're not like the Gentiles who don't know better. You know better and he says, when you aim for sin, you lose control and then you take advantage of another. That's what verse 6 goes on to, that you, no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. I've told you before that I know a youth minister that did not avoid pornography. He lost control and he abused a girl in an inappropriate way on a church van on the way to church camp, right? We are foolish if we think we shouldn't heed that warning. We are foolish if, instead of knowing how far can I turn my back on sin, instead I want to know how close I can get to sin and Jesus still be okay. He says, move away so that you don't lose control and then take advantage of another. And then he tells you why. Verse seven, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. He's not called us for sin, he has called us from sin. So he's not called us to sin more so that grace abounds and shows him more. He's called us from that. He's called us in holiness to, to look like that. And then here's the hope for all of us. Verse 8. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God. I just I want to say that to you this morning. I didn't write 1 Thessalonians 4 and I didn't write 1 Peter. So you can walk out of here. You will not be disregarding me. I did not write this text. I'm just pointing to this text. You will be disregarding God in his will, in his way. But here's the hope, verse eight. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Let me give you some encouragement. I've never really gotten into NASCAR, and so for all the people that are in NASCAR, I, you know, I, I mean, I love, it's cool they go fast. They just go in circles. I don't get it. It seems like it'd be really hard to, work your way through. I mean, I've done it on go-kart tracks. You know, it can be really hard. And so I want you to know that the Holy Spirit is not a pace car. You see, what the pace car does is it leads the pack, but the pace car doesn't do a single thing for any of the cars behind it, right? The Holy Spirit, I don't want you to think of him as a pace car. I want you to think about Crosstown. And every time that you're Crosstown, I pray God brings this image to you because you're going to have a lot of opportunities. At Crosstown, there are trains that come through. Did you know that? <laughs> and they seem to come through at the time I want to pass 
every time. It doesn't matter. There's not really, it seems a fit schedule. It just says, Landon's coming through right now. Come on, here's a train, right? What is it that, that pulls all of those other cars? You know what it is? It's, what's it called? It's the engine, right? The engine is one that's, that's pulling. That, that engine is not just leading the other cars into, come on, caboose. Come on, little fella, right? The caboose goes where the engine wills. And the engine in all of its strength is pulling. God has given you an engine, not a pace car. God has given you his very presence. God has given you himself. So as you hear this morning, God's holy. Be holy. What we rejoice is that in Christ, we have all of the holiness we need. We can hear in all your conduct, be holy. And we can know how difficult it's going to be not to sin in the car when we get out of this place. But you have all the resources you need. He has given you his very presence. And every day he gives you his grace and mercies which are new. I want to give you some final thoughts on holiness. In the back of your page, in the notes, just final summaries here. Holiness is God producing his character in us and through us. Holiness is a position. We, we are in Christ. But it is also a process that we continue to grow in Christ. And it is a partnership with God and with our faith family. God intended our pursuit of holiness to be in his power, not on our own, and with his people, not alone. And we're going to see when we pick up next week, should the Lord grant us, when we study verses 22 through, through verse 3 of chapter 2, that God, there's a therefore of how we relate to our fellow believers. That God has changed this as well. And so that's the good news. I could not be holy on my own without the accountability of Tara and Eric and our elders. I, I would lack the desire and pursuit of holiness if left to my own. It would be overwhelming. Having them push me together, the encouragement. And this is what God has designed, that you would not be holy in your own power. You can't. And that you would not try to be holy alone. He's not asked you to do that. He's given us a people that we can be real together. Let me just ask then some concluding questions. Is the therefore of the gospel evident in your life? If 1 through 12 is true, then 13 and what follows is to be true. There should be a therefore. Has the gospel call brought godly change? Are you preparing your mind for the sake of the gospel? Or are you just preparing your mind to win Bible study conversations? It says we prepare our minds for action, to go for the sake of the gospel, that our mind's in gear however God needs to use me Monday morning. My mind's prepared. I'm, I'm in gear for the gospel. Is our mind controlled by the word or the world? Is it dominated more by the word or the world? Is all of our conduct revealing his character? Or just, just some of it. Are there ways in which his image is blurred? Is our hope fully on the grace that Christ is bringing us? Or do we still have some hope in what we are attempting to do for Jesus? Let that be crushed today. You don't need to attempt to do anything. He has already accomplished all that needs to be done. Father, thank you for this morning and the chance to study in your word. I pray this passage is impossible if we're not believers. So from the very beginning, I pray for those in this room who may need today to yield their life to Christ. For the resources or for those who have repented 
for those who have been regenerated. And so, Father, I pray for those in the room who've never fully yielded their life to Christ. I pray for those in the room that the therefore of the gospel is not very evident. It is not because the gospel is weak or that you're weak. Where the gospel call takes root, there is godly change. And so, Father, if, if there seems to be a minimal therefore, it is either because we do not know Jesus or we're not obeying Jesus. When we truly know Jesus and when we obey Jesus, the therefore of the gospel is clear because people can see Jesus in us. Please help us, God. Grant the grace, grant the desire not to be dominated by the things of the world, but to be influenced by your word. You will not make up for laziness. If we don't open our Bible, you don't make up for that and magically just put whole Bible books in our mind. Then that holiness is a partnership and we have a role to play in your strength and resources and part of that is opening our word and studying it to, to know what you want so we'll do it in your strength Father I pray that uh, we would never never let our access to you be to the detriment of our awe of you even now around your throne they declare your holiness I pray that you would help us to live then with right fear and reverence. And then to never get over that, that you who are holy, 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 at great cost to yourself have made a means for we who readily know our unholiness to be with you. That you sent a perfect and precious and priceless lamb. And through his blood, you've cleansed us. And that you knew all along, he was foreknown that this would take place. So our salvation was not an afterthought or a reaction, but it was a forethought. It was a plan to have a people for your namesake, who that as you raised Christ and revealed Christ, that we would put our faith and hope in you, that you are the God who saves. So would you help us then to be obedient children? Would you... Help us because we've all grown up and at times we've doubted whether our mom and dad knew what was best or we just didn't like what they wanted us to do. Would you help us to see that all you call us to do is right and best? May we not doubt your word. May we trust that every do not is drenched in love and that every do is drenched in love. And so may they see your character in all of our conduct, not just some of it. There are ways that people have to guess who our father is. May, may it never be that Jesus would have to say to us, you are like your father, the devil. May it be that we have been rescued and ransomed and redeemed from those ways. He's not our spiritual father anymore. You are our heavenly father. And so may we be obedient children, not obstinate children. Break the obstinance in our hearts this morning if you need to. Move us to tears in this room if you need to. But let us not walk out of here in foolishness and sin. Move us to confess and to be real. For you've called us to be holy together. May we not try to pretend and fool each other in this place. That's no good for us. May we know that we have been approved by you so we don't try to impress others. 
We need to be real. We need to put away real sins. That only happens when we confess to each other and we seek your help and seek help from one another. So let this be a safe place to be the church. Father, help us to walk in holiness because you are holy. Because you provide all the resources we need for life and godliness, help us to make every effort to grow in those. For if we do these things, it will keep us from being ineffective and unfruitful in Jesus. And Lord, who wants to be ineffective and unfruitful for Jesus? That we remember we have been cleansed. And this place, we never go past the gospel, we go deeper into it. May we relish the indicatives, what you've done for us. And may may those truths fuel our obedience to the imperatives. What you're calling us to do in the resources you give us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing. Maybe you need to come and kneel and pray. I want to invite you to do that. Maybe you need to sit and pray. You feel free to respond to the Lord's